oftentimes with an antagonist, that's what I'm, I've been playing, with that antagonist, the story isn't as fleshed out as the protagonist. So I fill in those blanks and I think it's necessary to find the humanity in the antagonist. And so there's gotta be reason to justify that behavior. Hello and welcome to Arts In, the podcast produced by Creative Pinellas. I'm Barbara St. Clair, your host, and I'm here with Eugenie Bondurant, who is a marvelous actress, an acting teacher, a chanteuse, and international model. So I am in Paris. I'm either for fitting or show or something, and I'm told for this project, for which I had been pinned and I'm now booked, that I couldn't talk about, Marvel. Uh, can you come in? Can, we need to see you before you start working for fitting. Okay, geez. Um, okay, because I was supposed to fly back to Tampa. The, everything is in Atlanta. And I said, yeah, sure, I'll change my ticket. And then I'll spend the night. Could you get me a hotel room? Yeah, sure, sure, sure. So they picked me up. So I'm coming in from Paris from a fitting. I go the next day. I have a meeting with everyone. You're in the meeting with hair and makeup. Blah, blah, blah. Do you mind if we do anything like dye your eyebrows? No, I don't mind that at all. It's like you always say yes. Yeah, sure, no, it's fine. I thought I didn't think anything of it. In the meantime, when I was in Paris, all these 20 year olds, right? They're like three, there are about three of them with bleach eyebrows. And I think, wow, that's a really interesting look, <laughs> you know? So, but I don't think, I don't put two and two together, right? All in right, fact, there's I'm... a website that talks about the special makeup from Werewolf by Night. And I, they identified, I think, four or five of us, and one of them was me, you know, harking back to old Hollywood drama, you know, the Hollywood look. So I, a week later, I go to set, and they said, okay, we're going to dye your eyebrows. You're still okay with that? Yeah, 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 sure. I get them done, and I think, wow, I'm a 20-year-old. This is really difficult. It's, it's, a, it's, an, it's a very interesting feeling when you go to the grocery you know, and you go to dinner, and I'm oblivious because they're my eyebrows. I don't have a mirror to my face, but people give you just a slight second glance where they, they're just looking at you twice, and they don't know why they're looking at you twice, I think, and sure enough, so right after filming, all the filming, everything, I get on the plane. They re-dyed my eyebrows brown. I kind of wanted to keep them, but they said, you know, halfway through, they're going to be blonde and brown, and it, and it might be a little strange, and they may not grow in as well, etc., etc. Okay, fine. Put them back. Yet again, Balenciaga, there were about three models who had their eyebrows bleached. And I could have been, I could have been one of those people. It would have been great. I mean, I would have been right trending. 61 years old versus 20 year old. It's okay. It's all good. I want to talk with you about Balenciaga and Demna. Yes, Demna. But one of the things I read about him is that the New York Times calls him fashion's playful saboteur. That is true. That, yes, he likes to push the envelope in regards to fashion and the statement on human, the statement of the world. And whatever anyone thinks of as correct He's going to break that mold and come up with something interesting and creative and present it. He's 
always right on the edge of the trend, but close enough that the public embraces it. If he was way far out, he would be a trendsetter, but not really, people wouldn't really understand it, but now, but people do. So his looks are approachable and easy to understand. His shows are thought-provoking and challenging. I mean, I think of, I call it the snow globe show, where I felt like we were all, all the models were in a snow globe and the people who were watching, they were all behind this giant plexiglass area, round area, and we were walking in the snow. It was freezing cold. Uh, winds, they, during the course of the show, I was at the very end, so during the course of the show, the winds uh, increased. They were about double the velocity of rehearsal, mm. and they, it just was jarring, and the music got louder and louder and louder and louder. So by the time I got on, it was just this pounding music, and strobes were going on and off as if you know, there, were, there was bombing. But that was right after the Ukrainian crisis broke. He almost canceled the show. Sure, sure. And then he said, no, 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 this is going to be a, I'm, I'm going to put on the show and this, we're going to change the, just the whole concept. And he did. I'm, I'm proud to have been a part of that. I was interested when you said that, you know, you're with all the 21-year-olds. <laughs> there are a few 30-year-olds, sorry. And there are a few that are actually in my age category. Yeah. Who did you relate to the best? <laughs> it's funny. I, of course, immediately went to who's in my age category and started talking with them. But there, there are many of those other models with whom I've become friends. I'm kind of like a, the aunt uh -huh. who comes in. Well, and they start talking to me because, I, you know, I guess because I asked them, well, so what do you want to do? It's not just modeling, just modeling is modeling. I mean, you know, what are you going to do after this ends? Because really that there needs to be some, you know, they have to start thinking about it. I guess as a teacher, right. um, I think, come on, come on, come on, let me encourage you. So I hear all kinds of fun stories, you know, uh, I'm an artist. Wow. Okay, what have you done? Talk to me. And, you know, I'm, uh, I just want to be a model. And, you know, my eyes get big. Wow, that's fantastic. And I, I start stumbling, stumbling on my dialogue like, like that, really, just a model. And I'm thinking, ah, don't be the mother. <laughs> you don't need a mother. So, but it's really fun. And some people are in transition. Some people are, and they, you know, I guess I'm, someone that they feel they can trust. Mm -hmm. And it's nice. Oftentimes we're in a hotel. So if I'm in one hotel, I know for sure there'll be, I don't know, eight other models probably in that hotel. They're around, usually average 60 models in a show. Wow. Sometimes less, sometimes more. Everyone wears one outfit. They come from all over Europe, a handful from America, some from South America. So we're in a hotel and we, you know, sit at breakfast together. Yeah, yeah. It's really fun. So. so I was going to ask you what you liked better, acting or modeling. And oh, I like them all. You know, I feel like modeling at my age, <laughs> uh, having done it previously, it piques my interest now. It did back then, but now I feel like, ooh, what kind of story am I creating on that runway now? You know, who is this person? So now I can create this whole thread and using my imagination, you know, okay, she's, I don't know, some sort of... Like in the snow globe show, she's 
wealthy, but she's had my dress is a, she's had to leave her house with only what she could bring, and she's got to make it through the snow. She was caught at a function. Now, if you saw my dress, and you'd understand because it's this gorgeous lace dress, head to toe, but that's been shredded, mm -hmm. and the end with this long, long train that's flowing down the trail and whipping up with the wind. And then I think, well, how would I be in those circumstances? And why would I be in those circumstances? And so it helps get me through the snow. Of course, at which point the actor in me goes, oh, you know, the improv part says, what if I pretend to trip and fall? And then I realize, no, Eugenie, don't do that. Don't do that. Anyway, reality hits. And then I realize how cold I am and how hard it is walking in the snow and how and being pushed back. It's like walking in hurricane winds, you know. But it's interesting. And heels. Yeah, it's interesting that what you said, because you had it in your imagination. What if you tripped and fell? And I'm sure that influenced the physical presentation of what you were doing and somehow an emotional experience for people seeing you because you had the story going in your head. Yeah, yeah. I will say. <laughs> so sometimes what happens Things are so different than when I used to model. Mm -hmm. You know, everything was elegant and beautiful and, you know, da da. But like you had said, Balenciaga just breaks through all of that. It's not always beautiful. It's, he, he makes statements with his clothes. So I'm <laughs> just, every time we do a rehearsal, there's a coordinator there. There's always a critique. Well, you didn't go fast enough. It has to be mean and strong and aggressive. And I'm thinking, <laughs> no. wait this is not okay take it like the director stop 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 the you know the dialogue running dialogue right, in my head. right. and the kids i call them kids they're not they are but they're in these high shoes and yeah they're walking around yeah okay i'll walk fast and aggressive i think how do you do that so quickly how do you do that but they do it's a job and so now i've got to change the you know story in my head well, you know, it, was, it reminded me when you were talking about that. One time, your husband, Paul Wilburn, who's also an artist, a mm -hmm. writer and a musician, he was saying that as an actress, when you sing, because that is one of the amazing, wonderful things that you do, Thank you. that you sing as an actress. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so you're telling the story, not just giving melody to the words, right? Yes. So you're bringing that power to everything that you do. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Well, what do you think about that? I appreciate you saying that. I really do. The story in music came from not feeling confident that I was singing and that maybe I might have been off pitch, mm. right? Mm. And not having performed since I was a teenager. So I thought, oh, what can I do? Oh, I can find a story in the song. My fallback where I'm comfortable is the message in the song. And I realized, oh, you know, that resonates with people. So I, if I have something to say that someone else might be interested in hearing, then that's what's important. The most important thing is conveying the message of the song and how relevant it is to me, what it does to me as a person. What is the story in the song and how, how have I personalized it? show I was in was the couture show in the Balenciaga Salon and part of me when we were doing rehearsal I thought oh 
Well, this is fun. Just stay upright, Eugenie. Stay upright. That's my story. And then I realized, no, 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 no. You're comfortable with this gown. It was made to fit you to, to your measurements. Right. That's couture. It has my name in it, for heaven's sakes. It's, it's stunning. Every one of those pieces are absolutely stunning and has taken months and months and months and months to make each design in the show. When I walked in that dress, as little time, it wasn't very long. It was maybe a minute or two that I was presenting, and that's it. There was a story, and part of it was there was a lot of confidence going on in it, too. I thought, yeah, well, okay, yeah. Yeah, this is where I deserve to be. <laughs> it's so crazy that I would think that, you know. At any rate, it, it was very fun. There was a story. But, you know, there's, it's funny. You were talking about songs. There's a song that I sing called Poetry Man. And I love that song. It is uh, about the heartbreak of a woman who's in love with a married man. And I, I've never been in a situation like that. And thank goodness I'm married to a wonderful man. And that's very solid. And, but the song, we all have been through heartaches. And it doesn't matter the type of relationship that it is. It could even be, uh, it could be a romantic relationship, it could be a friendship, and it can be uh, a parental relationship. So if we look at the heartbreak of knowing that that relationship will not end up becoming something, mm -hmm. that turns into heartbreak, a loss. So we've created loss. Mm -hmm. So. For me, looking at a song like that, I can justify the behavior of the woman who's singing the song because I can personalize it. It's the personalization of the loss. Right. And that's what's intriguing to me. And that's what makes that song so special. That I don't have to, you know, sing it perfectly, but I absolutely feel like I must convey that message. Certainly, you're not a werewolf hunter, <laughs> and you know, you're not a crazy woman, and you're not... I don't see movies like The Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It, or even Fear of Rain. I don't see right. movies where I know really awful things are going to happen, mm -hmm. so I'm speculating here. But I don't believe that any of those experiences are yours, but somehow you've brought a truth to them which is why they resonate to people and why, in my opinion, why you're elevated in those movies. And all that people want to do is talk about you and they can't take their eyes off you because there's some aspect of your being, your personhood, that you're sharing. Something about that story touches mm -hmm. you in a very deep and true way. And you're able to connect with that and then bring that out. Uh, a side note, Paul and I, when we are either thinking about going to see a movie or watching something on a streaming service, more than likely we won't watch something, thanks to me, that has something bad about to happen to someone else. So, uh, true fact, I had not watched any of the Conjuring movies before booking the Conjuring. And I did watch The Nun, oddly, and I could take that. And it was dark and I was by myself. Mm. Shocking. 
But I thought, oh, that's, I could deal with that. But the other ones, oh, no. In fact, you know, I'm sitting here, I'm getting goosebumps. Yes, thinking, no, yes you are. No, no, no. So, yes, it, again, it goes back to personalization. Oftentimes with an antagonist, that's what I'm, I, I've been playing, with that antagonist, the story isn't as fleshed out as the protagonist because the antagonist is stopping the protagonist usually from getting what they want, right? So I've got to then color in what is not elaborated in the script. This is for film and television, not necessarily for plays. Because the dialogue is there to push the action forward, right, right. it's not dialogue heavy, it's not explanatory in yeah. film. So I fill in those blanks, and I think it's necessary to find the humanity in the antagonist. I don't believe we're all inherently evil. I think something, something makes us do what we do, and, and so there's got to be reason to justify that behavior. Mm -hmm. So now, in my mind, they think, well, I may not, you know, what these antagonists are doing doesn't even resonate with me. Why would this person do this? But instead of looking at it as me pointing my finger at the antagonist, I have to then think, oh, what propelled the antagonist to do this and behave this way? What is stopping the antagonist from getting what he or she wants? Mm -hmm. So then... That's where, as an artist, it's almost as if you're drawing the character and then coloring in the character for yourself. Sure. So, Fear of Rain, I had an entire backstory because I had to justify this person's behavior. Conjuring, same thing. I was so taken by the fact that instead of using the word villain, you use the word antagonist, mm -hmm. which to me has so many more doors that you can walk in. Yes. You need to find them as an antagonist, then they are very much more multidimensional. Absolutely. It's interesting you say that. I auditioned for a role, and I saw the role as more villainous, and it was difficult for me to sink my fingers into it. You didn't see any of the humanity of the character. It was just evil on top of evil on top of evil you know bad stuff bad stuff bad stuff and I thought I can't I don't I don't know how to approach that I mean it was an enigma to me mm -hmm. not a fun puzzle it right. was a I'm not interested in this character puzzle right I'm, I've been fortunate in that the roles that have come my way have been more there have been areas where I can do a deep dive, where I see, it, I can create an explanation for the behavior of that character. How did, how did you do that? If you wouldn't mind sharing some choices that you made or, or thoughts that you might have had about how to get into what was driving the antagonist. Sure, okay, so let's start with Conjuring. Okay. So Conjuring, uh, the role that I played was Isla. She is an occultist or was an occultist. And what does that mean exactly to be an occultist? She studies Satanistic practices and so forth and so on. She was raised within the church. She is the child of a priest and was hidden away. Very intelligent woman. Fun fact, we filmed during the summer of 2019 and they did a test run and I got a call from the director saying, hey, listen, the audience wants more Yuji, which was a big compliment. I thought, thank you very much. And so a year later, we went back and filmed a different 
ending. Wow. I mean, I had a different. I wore different clothes. I then had a father, and they really and and I I have to think. Well, I would like to think it was because of the work that I did on this character, but I can't be sure if that's the case or not. But they came back and they added more story and justification and fleshed out my character. So, when you look at her, she is the only child of this man. She's been pushed away. So what I do is I look at a character and I think, I, I take out all the pertinent information from the script and I write it in a, one of those cheap dollar books that you get for pages. So I'm writing down all this pertinent information about my character. I write down repeating words. I write down anything that I might want to look up as a meaning, like uh, the name Isla, what does that mean? Right? So, and then, and of course I didn't know Isla until later, but still, if I knew her name, I would have known to write it down. But I write down all that information and all of that starts to build a picture. What I need to do is figure out, here's the picture on one side and I'm on the other side, Eugenie Bondurant. How do I build a bridge between me and the picture? Or me and the other side, if we're looking, if we think of it as water, uh, I've got to build a bridge over the water to get to the other side, to be able to personalize that text. Well, so I use my imagination based in truth. So I have to then find triggers in that dialogue. What is a trigger? What is a trigger? What is a trigger? Oh, well, religion might be a trigger. Father image might be a trigger. Why is she, why does she end up doing the stuff she does? Mm -hmm. Well, I have to ask myself the question, okay, who do I love? What is it that this character wants? Right. Does she want attention? Does she want love? Does she want, what is it? So somehow through asking a bunch of whys, I come to the essence of what she wants. I felt like she wanted love. Oh. That was my choice. It could have been, you know, someone else might have had a different choice. Right. Okay. She doesn't kill the people she kills out of evil, I thought. Okay. No. She is doing that to get what she wants. So in my mind, what I, I put Paul in the equation. Hmm. Okay. Mm. So once I do that, I think, oh... Ding, ding, ding. That's my big lottery ticket there. Paul Wilborn, right? So what would I do for Paul? What if he was sick? What if I had to do certain things in order to make him well? Would I do anything to make him better? Absolutely. You bet it. You bet I would. Would I do anything to save his life? Yes, I would. Would I do anything to keep him with me? Absolutely I would. And so then I start thinking, well, doesn't this woman do that too? Mm -hmm. And so is that now the bridge? It's no longer, oh, she's going around putting casting spells here and there. No, she's doing that for a reason. Okay, what is the reason? Oh, so if I substitute Paul in the place, and I use my mention based in truth. I mean, there's a lot, there's a, there was a lot more to that story and so forth. But really, the essence is that, is that one simple thing. What would I do for love right. and to keep, in fact, it's just, um, 
-hmm. It's really hard emotionally to even think about that. Yeah. So certain scenes in there, my, I don't care who these people are. I, I don't, I, what, I'm going to poison you? You better I'm going to poison you because if it's going to help the one, the, the one person that I love the most, right. then. So, so what I just got is that you have created for yourself based on what, you were talking about earlier about protagonist and antagonist. You've created a protagonist arc for yourself as mm -hmm. the antagonist. Mm -hmm. And it really may have nothing to do with the story that the audience is seeing or that the scriptwriter wrote or that the playwright wrote, but it's a story that you bring in which you're the protagonist and you have a forward momentum and the, the real protagonist of, of the film or whatever is in the way of you succeeding. <laughs> That's a brilliant way to solve that problem of how to bring truth to a, a performance, I think. You know, I'm going to steal what you said, if you don't mind. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> that indeed is what I do. You also teach acting. Yes. So, among other things, you are teaching other people how to do that. Mm -hmm. I teach scene study and Meisner technique. So what we just talked about were glimpses into the Meisner technique. You use that, that is the whole premise, Sandy Meisner's premise is using your imagination based in truth. But also being able to do a play or be in a film and be able to walk away and have your own life. You're not living the life of this character off screen or off stage. Thank goodness. So that would be method acting, right? Yes, that would be method acting. That is not me. I have to go home and, you know, take a nice long bath. <laughs> and one of the things I do is after a, a difficult day working on set, I get a blank piece of paper like the one that you have there and I rip it out. I might even scribble on it. I rip it out and I crumble it up and I throw it in the trash can. And that's, that's a silly way of me going, okay, we're done. Right. <laughs> We're finished. I don't have to worry about that anymore. Tomorrow's a different day. We're going to have different things to think about. Different scenes. Sort of the curtain closing on that, mm -hmm. so to speak. Yeah. I don't want to harbor any, yeah, uh, yeah, anything. Would you like to know a fun fact? I don't know why I thought of it just now. A fun fact about conjuring? Of course. Okay. In the beginning of filming, the production asked a bishop to come and bless the set. Oh. Yeah, and he did. And before I started filming all of my heavy, heavier scenes, the publicist, James Ferrara, asked me, would you like to have the bishop come back and bless your set? Yes! <laughs> Please! <laughs> we did. It was, uh, and it ended up being a lot of fun being on set and, and doing that work. This part got cut out, but I got to learn how to wrangle goats. Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, like no. I, I don't want to ask, yeah. yeah, ask why. Yeah, I don't want to ask why. No, no. Um, it was, uh, oof. Yeah. So, Fear of Rain was produced by local Florida producers who are outstanding and they still are here, and they're still producing films. And they had been looking for this antagonist for a long time. They'd looked at about a thousand submissions. Oh my gosh. In the meantime, 
Hallmark was scouring properties for their next shoot, and I heard about it, and I knew their production office wasn't far away from my house, so I thought, oh, hey, if I'm not currently working, I want my house to work. So I call up, you know, I find out the production company's number, and I call them up and said, I'm around the corner, and I can see if I can get you into other houses in the area. So here comes the location scout and decides to take photos of our house, and he comes in, and he's from L.A., and such a nice chap. We just hit it off. And he said, I'm not just shooting for Hallmark. I'm looking for places for this other film that I'm doing right after Hallmark. Oh, okay, fine. And I said, I want to be one of the pictures. So I you know, do my head, this weird head <laughs> through the window, you know, make probably some sort of weird look or something because I was horsing around. Why not? So he goes back to the production office, the second film production office in Bradenton after leaving Hallmark production office. And says, this, I looked at another house today. I think you might be interested. Well, earlier that day, one of the producers who I, at that time was an acquaintance, now he's a close friend, but had mentioned my name and said, this girl is in this area and I think you should look at her for one of the roles in the film. So the director saw that earlier and clocked it, you know, but then sees the pictures of the house and comes across my photo and went, oh, <laughs> oh no, really? Wait a minute. <laughs> wow. And, and, and our friend Todd, location scout, said, you know, she's also an actor. I just saw her. She said, I saw her IMDb page. I think I'd like her to read for Dan. Wow. And three weeks later, two weeks later, the role was then offered to me as Danny. Oh, wow. As opposed to Dan. So, and it worked. You could not have seen, when you see the film, you'll understand how um, it would have changed the dynamic to have had a man in that role than a woman. I love and that woman story. Works. I really did. I'm, I That's do like too. It's like a Shreff's <laughs> drugstore story, right? And you think to yourself, if I had just been different and not put my face in that window, right? Yeah. I always think, too, it brings me around to always saying yes uh, to an opportunity. And that was an opportunity, you know, that you're, either your gut or the universe is saying, yeah, just stick your head through the window. Yeah, that's wonderful. Oh, my goodness. A couple times in this conversation, there were some dogs barking outside. Yeah. And I thought to myself, all right, they are cueing me. I have to wait for the right moment to talk about werewolf at night. Not uh-huh. that... <laughs> so funny thing, the other day there was a moon, full moon, and we were all watching werewolf at night, and I walked outside, and there was the full moon. I know, this is really neat. And we all started howling. I thought that was perfect. It was a perfect exclamation point to the film. It's a Marvel universe. It's movie, a Marvel right? universe, yeah. So what is, I mean, that just to me is bizarre that, forgive me, this is my like fangirl thing, but you know, that a person who lives right in essentially my neighborhood <laughs> is part of the Marvel universe. Well, what hit me when Werewolf came out, I thought, oh my goodness. So when I came out in Conjuring, they said, oh, you're part of the Conjuring universe. And then they're filming a new Hunger Games film. Oh, wow. And then it dawned on me, wait a minute, I'm part of the Hunger Games universe, 
the Conjuring universe, and now the Marvel universe, quotes, air quotes. So, yeah, that's, that was very cool to just even think about. Yeah, it, it's, it was very neat. We couldn't say anything when I booked this, and you, you have to sign so many documents, so many NDAs, and uh, at the start of filming, there's a security officer that, with his assistant who comes and talks to each one of the cast members and tells them the protocol for filming a Marvel project. At which point I thought, this, this, this wasn't even like Hunger Games or Conjuring. Wow, this is incredible. We couldn't bring home our sides. We, if we left the set, we couldn't bring the sides with sides. What by is the, way, the side? pages from the script that oh, you are okay. filming that day. You couldn't leave them anywhere. You sit in the chair, and when you're not filming, you're doing something or looking at your phone. I was the only one knitting. So they shred them. It's all very secretive. So I couldn't say anything to anyone. I did text a friend of mine who's a stunt gal. Her name is Jess Durham. She's won awards for stunt work, SAG awards and whatnot. And Right before I went up there, I said, Jess, are you maybe working on a project in the next week that might be X amount of time long, that might be at the same studio where we filmed Conjuring, that, I don't know, maybe might be uh, the name of the production company is six letters long, <laughs> maybe. She said, as a matter of fact, I am. I'm going for a fitting today. And I told them that I'm your stunt double. Said, yes! <laughs> yes! Oh, great. I'm so, so excited. So, yeah, being part of that universe is just the even idea that I, little old me around the corner is, was. So your fangirl is coming out about it too. Yes! Well, honestly, I didn't, you know, we weren't allowed to read comic books when I was a kid. We could read the newspaper comics. So. Same. I, you know, DC, Marvel, I don't know. And then uh, I realized, I'm now realizing still what a big deal it is. But really, you know what the big deal is? Is working with this cast. Mm. Was working with the producers and wonderful writer and the, the director, Michael Giacchino. He is very well known for his music scoring. He's won Academy Awards and one of the funnest directors in the morning and in the evening, he started the day with a smile and he would end the day with a smile. We started off our set, the first day of filming, he got all of us sitting around in a circle and said, okay, so we're going to introduce ourselves to one another and I ask you to tell us what your first scary movie was and why it was so scary to you. And so each one of us talked about that. Now. To do something like that, I would do that in my class, mm -hmm. but I wouldn't imagine him doing that on set. And he did. And it really bonded us. And so what ended up happening was this collaborative uh, project that, even though I wasn't, the only thing I was doing was doing my job, but it still felt very collaborative and friendly and it was fun. It was a lot of fun. Mm. Today we're running. Today you're doing stunt rehearsal. Today you're fitting. <laughs> Today, we're filming you in the cloaks. <laughs> Today is, you know, the werewolf, the stunt werewolf flying on a wire up on one of the creatures. Mm. Okay, great. That's fun. Today, uh, Ted, Man-Thing, is going to step over you. Fabulous. Don't <laughs> trip. <laughs> so, yeah. 
It was really fun. It was great to be a part of it. So how did it happen? I mean, does your agent call you up and say, I have a great part you should audition for? Or do you call your agent and say, what's new? Um, how, how, does all, how does all of that come together for you? So how this works is when you have agency representation, your agent's job is to scour things that are called the breakdowns. And the breakdowns are roles that are being asked to be cast by production companies. And casting directors will list those roles in what are called the breakdown services, right? So my agent has an eagle eye and she is fantastic. And she saw a role that was coming out of LA and she works primarily in the Southeast, but she keeps her eye open for things out of LA because sometimes they'll come out with these juicy things for which I might be right. Mm -hmm. Okay. So she saw it and she said, I submitted you for something. Now, normally she never says when she submits me, but this time I submitted you for something. I think it's going to, so just be on the alert for an audition. Okay, fine. I don't think about it. I think, yeah, well, if I get it, I get it. Well, I ended up getting an audition for it, which means that I'm sent the sides, which are pages from the script that they want me to read. And I'm given a deadline to put myself on tape reading for this role. And you have a reader off camera, you, you can do this now easily thanks to the internet, thanks to everyone has a computer, has basic editing software, and everyone has video camera capabilities on their phone now. I know, is that amazing or what? <laughs> Thank goodness. All right, so, you know, during COVID too, during the shutdowns, that was the main method where everyone was auditioning as well. So anyway, I put myself on tape and... I didn't think anything of it. Well, about a month later, it usually takes about two weeks for a film or TV projects. About two weeks for a film. Sometimes it's longer. For a commercial, there's a quick turnaround. I didn't hear from her in two weeks. I thought, eh, oh well. It was a short script. I taped it with Mary Rachel Quinn, who's my dear friend. She and I are partners in crime. I tape her, she tapes me. So all of a sudden, I get a phone call from my agent. Hi. Um, You've been pinned for this project. And what does pinned mean? Well, that's what I said. I knew what it meant, okay. but then I thought, I just need some clarity here, <laughs> you know? So, huh. So I, I said, what does that mean? Well, they like you a lot, and they're pushing you. They pushed you forward to producers, and you're their top choice. Wow. Oh, well, that's nice. Again, don't hang your hat on it because that's not going to bring the money in right. or the credit in because... Anything can happen. Anything could happen. So yeah, that's great. I tell Mary Rachel, I've been pinned for it. She's just hooping and hollering, yes! I said, I said, but uh-uh. I haven't been booked for this. Literally about a month and a half later, I get another thing. Well, you've been booked, and they want to know your availability, and blah, 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 blah. So that, that's how that worked out. Very yeah. cool. And sometimes, not as often, but sometimes uh, because of conjuring, because of fear of rain, and now hopefully with Marvel, I'll get direct bookings where I won't have to audition. Mm -hmm. Hopefully more of those would come in, mm -hmm. will come in. And they're good projects, let's hope so. Yeah, so it's interesting you said that because I was going to ask you what happens after. And I meant that question in a couple different levels. So, you know, this great movie came out. It's mm -hmm. on Disney Channel. Mm-hmm. What's the follow-up? Is there any, you know, does, is there a reunion? <laughs> or, do you, or is it just, hey, that was work, finished it, 
move on to the next work? That's usually how it is. That's yeah. work, finish it, move on. If you're lucky, there's a premiere. So what happens after, if it's a big enough role like this, even though I, you know, it, I'm not Harriet or Gael or Laura, it, there are only nine or ten of us, <laughs> um, I usually end up working with a publicist. And even without the publicist, interviews will you know, come in, people want to, they see it and they say, oh, it's Marvel, we want to interview you. So that, and that's been fun. I had an opportunity to show this to my students. Your acting students. My acting students, yeah. And that was an experience uh, that was wonderful. The trailer had come out, mm -hmm. so I was able to, at the top of class, I brought, as a, as a fun gag, I brought my chair back. Now, what a chair back means is if you're doing a run of show, run of show means you're booked from beginning to end mm -hmm. of the show. That you, is happen. that what it mm -hmm. was for you, this one? Mm -hmm. Conjuring, Fear of Rain, you know. And so when you're booked run of show, usually if there's enough money in the budget, you know, those captain chairs, right, right. and you've seen them, and the people it has people's names on and da-da-da. It's kind of known in the business. Everybody knows what they are. Well, they'll make chairs, and they'll put the name of the project on one side and either, usually your name or the character name on the back. And that's what they did for Werewolf by Night. So I have a captain's chair and in my class, and I snuck it on there without them knowing the, the back, and I brought it to the middle of the class. And I thanked my students for their support because really, honestly, they give me a lot of support. Mm -hmm. And I, it's a mutual love fest. So mm. uh, I thank them for you know, helping to enable this to happen. And then I turned the chair around and everybody's on their feet like, ah, yelling. Oh, sure, I, I, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's not what your everyday expectation is. <laughs> you know, your neighbor down the street or your friendly yeah. neighborhood acting teacher is part of the Marvel Universe. Marvel Universe. Um, I want to come back to your students in a minute, but I have to ask. So were you an antagonist or a protagonist in Werewolf by Night? Well, yet again, I felt like I was a protagonist instead of an antagonist. However, in the storyline, I am an antagonist. But if we think about it, there are two sides to every story, right? So in this story, we really are pro-monster. Mm -hmm. We want our monsters to be okay. But in Azarel's story, the monsters do damage. The monsters are not good for the environment. The monsters aren't good for humankind. They are destructive. So I looked at that story and said, okay, so how can I use this to enhance my story? So right. Azarel was the character you played? Or? Mm -hmm. Okay, so, right? so the audience is the on, audience. The, on the yes. side of the monster. Correct. But the character, your Correct. character and the other characters have their, at least at the very least, their doubts and concerns about the monsters. Correct. Correct. So I've got to figure that out. Like why, why, you know, why would that be? And I've got to justify that behavior. And so you can't just say, well, I'll justify it by doing this. That's not, it, do, it doesn't look believable. It doesn't appear believable if you just play at it. You've got to dig deeper into understanding why one person would behave a certain way. 
So, yes, yet again, I turn the antagonist into a protagonist in my mind. Right. It's her story. I also tell my acting students when they're working on a job, if it's more than one page, right, if you've got a little bit more of a fleshed out character, when you look at the script, take your character's story out of the script. Don't remove it. Just take it out so you can see it independently. Because then you'll understand, oh, what is happening with right. this antagonist? What, what's her story? What, what, what is she doing? Oh, these are her actions? Oh, well, then you can ask, why? Why is she doing that? Why? Oh, it's not in, in the script? Oh, okay. Well, I, I will figure it out. That's sort of the human condition, isn't it? That what you can see in that moment is just a very small fragment of what any of us bring. Yes. And what I'm hearing is that as an actress and as a singer and as a model and then as a teacher of mm -hmm. acting, you are investigating and challenging around those things to dig deeper. Indeed. Indeed. I do challenge. I challenge my actors for that. I think sometimes it alarms them. And they all know I'm a softie, so I do this with love. But they must ask they must ask the same questions of their characters. So here's an example in my class, the entrance. And the entrance is technically coming to the door. Well, coming to the door doesn't really mean coming to the door. It's what's motivating you to start the scene, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And we can easily look at that and think, oh, we'll just make something up. She's at a restaurant and she's there with a boyfriend and she's having a good time. No, that's just too... That's very bland general and, and abstract. Bland, right? Yeah. Right. So, okay, dig deeper. And so I asked them, I challenged, and I challenged them. But you've got to make a choice, otherwise it's going to look bland, it's going to look gray, it's going to look dull. There'll be no color in the scene. I'm trying to figure things out because I've been given niblets, right. and I'm going down the path. And that's cool because... I'm then making a choice. If the performer and or writer don't make a choice, then I'm not making a choice. That's no fun. Right. It's so <laughs> wonderful, though, to see good acting. It is, isn't it? <laughs> and then, of course, you're not seeing acting. You're seeing a, a, a story unfold. Somehow. Communication. Yeah, story. Well, it's, 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 just, it's just so lovely because, you know, um, you are at this peak of success right now. And listening to you, though, what's important to you is to tell the story well, to be a good teacher, to you know, be a good collaborator in, in the fictive dream that you're creating together, all of those things, and egoless, really. Thank you. There's no room for ego. So, I don't know when my next gig is, so there's definitely no room for ego. <laughs> <laughs> so, Eugenie, yes. thank you so much for this great conversation. It's been really wonderful. And um, I want to take your acting class. Please do. Station 12 Studio at Greenlight Cinema. Very good. This is Barbara St. Clair, and you've been listening to Arts In, also known as AI, the Creative Pinellas Podcast. Sponsored in part by the Pinellas County Board of County Commissioners, visit St. Petersburg Clearwater and the State of Florida Department of Cultural Affairs. Arts In is produced by Sheila Cowley. You can find more conversations with visual, literary, and performing artists and in-depth arts journalism at creativepinellas.org. Thank you for listening.